Today I've been absolutely thrilled to talk to the international best-selling author Nicola Morgan. And Nicola's written uh, fiction for teenagers and also non-fiction. And um, I would say the book that she is most known for is Blame My Brain, The Amazing Teenage Brain. Um, and that's what we're specifically talking about today. Although she's written many other books that are really, really helpful for understanding teenagers. And uh, the message she says is that you know, our brains are in our hands. Our brain isn't our fault. There are more things we can do to make our brains better than we think there are. And that when we understand how our brains work, we can start to make it work better instead of beating ourselves up about why it isn't working. I recommend Blame My Brain to just about every parent I meet. And, uh, and uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to Nicola today. Hi, Nicola. Hi, hello. Oh, I'm so glad you're on Precarious Parenting. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. Thanks very much for inviting me on. I'm really looking forward to it. I think we're going to have a great chat. I do too. So first of all, tell us about you, you know, paint a picture of who you are, where you live, what you're up to, what your general work is. Just go for it. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person of many hats, I think. Um, and through my life, I've had various parts of my career. But the, the main part and the part that has been for the last 15 years, I think, is uh, well, more than 15 years now, 17 years, I can't do my maths, um, is writing about, writing and speaking and thinking and sharing about everything to do with young people, teenagers specifically, adolescents, let's say, because teenagers, that sounds like 13 to 19, but actually adolescents, you, you could be talking about starting as early as 10 or even earlier sometimes and going actually way beyond 19. So um, I'm, I'm just fascinated by people at that stage of life, but I'm mostly fascinated by people, by human brains. And there's far more that's the same between people of that age group that I've just mentioned and people of my age group um, than there is that's different. But parents get very caught up in this change that often seems very sudden, that seems to happen usually during a summer holidays, just as they're going to secondary school or something like that. And so that became the area that I, that I focus on. But um, I call myself a writer and a speaker and a, and a supporter. And I spend, I should spend my time sitting at a desk writing books. And I am doing that most of the time at the moment, because I'm writing a book at the moment. But then I'm usually writing a book and writing a book consists of writing and sometimes researching, although now most of it is in my head, but also it consists of speaking and planning talks and engaging with people and communicating with people through my website or through um, Twitter or through my Facebook. I'm a big part of the Society of Authors, so I support authors and people who are trying to become authors. Um, I live very rurally and I'm looking out of my garden office window at the moment and over rolling countryside and a, a viaduct which a train sometimes goes over which is quite distracting. I'm very easily distracted. I have um, 
family to to look after as well. I have when I started doing this. So when Blame My Brain was first published in 2005, my two daughters were teenagers and now they are parents themselves. Um, mm -hmm. So they're in their early 30s and they have um, a, a grand. Uh, they have a, a boy each, a baby boy each and another one on the way. So I'm a, I'm a grandparent as well. And so I've kept very much in touch with how young people's lives are and that has changed quite a lot over the last 15 to 20 years yeah absolutely I also used to be a teenage novelist and I want to get back to that and before that I was a teacher and I investigated the brain I first came into the brain uh, through my interest in young people and adults with reading difficulties with specific learning difficulties so I'm just fascinated by anything to do with the brain and I focused on the teenage the adolescent aspect of it Oh, wow. And that's why I wanted you on this podcast series. <laughs> I also find it quite difficult to stop talking. So, I, yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it and I welcome it. And so I have said to you that with the work that I do with young people and with parents and I go into schools and also being a step parent myself. And when I first met the lads, they were 10 and 12 and now they're, you know, adults. And, and I came across blame my brain the amazing teenage brain and I was like oh this is really important this is a really important message so there's your book and there's another book which is kind of different but they're the two books that I just say to every parent but it's written for teens but I say to parents have you seen this book so I'm really excited and I and on your website um you're referred to as the teenage brain woman, which I just love. So, so could we talk about that? Could we talk about, and I know you said that as you were working with um, pupils who had reading difficulties, you started to become more interested in what's actually going on with the teenage brain. But could you actually talk about why you know, what was it? What was the nugget that really got you to go on this huge journey of learning? Yes, well, it, it was it was quite a coincidence or a set of coincidences, as so many things in life are. But um, as you say, I'd been studying and then working in helping people of all ages although usually children in schools with specific learning difficulties. So I'd become interested in how the brain works and I had developed a sense and at the time I was writing teenage fiction, had no intention of writing writing about the brain. Mm. Uh, but I had this sense, which I've had ever since I was a child, actually, of wanting to know how things work. And this idea that if you know how something works, or at least you know something about how it works, you can make it work better. You can use it better. You can make it work to its full capability. You can fix it when it goes wrong or you can try to fix it when it goes wrong and you can prevent it or try to prevent it going wrong and to me that that applies to to everything it applies to i remember mending my parents car boot because i i i could work out how it worked and what had gone wrong with it and therefore i could fix it and i applied that to the brain the human brain obviously it's way more complicated than a car boot lock or mm. anything else but it's the same thing if we can understand how something about how our brain works or somebody else's brain but 
we can start with our own one because we know that one better, then we can start to make it work better um, rather than beating ourselves up about why it's all going wrong, why is it not working properly for me and having this sense that you can't do anything about it. Once you understand some things about how it works, you can, you can um, make it work better. So that's why I um, extended my understanding of the brain in someone with dyslexia or a reading difficulty to trying to understand the brains of, of, of anybody. And as I say, I was writing fiction uh, at the time for teenagers and my daughters were teenagers at the time. But because I was interested in the brain and the internet was, was big enough and um, accessible enough by then that people like me, in other words, people who weren't research scientists working in a university could access research. I was reading and reading and reading everything that I could about the brain. And by chance, I came across some brand new research that no one had written about outside the scientific community to indicate that there were some specific physical differences in the teenage brain compared to a younger or older brain that helped explain some of the things that we have often observed and remember for our, from our own teenage years about the, some of the problems that teenagers sometimes have. And no one, as I say, had written about it outside the scientific community. And my editor, who was working on the fiction, with me said would you like to write some non-fiction and if so what would you like to write about and I said well yes and I've just I've just come across this research and literally no one in the world had written about it for teenagers or or even for for um adults outside the scientific community but certainly not for teenagers and I said how about I do that and she pitched it to the rest of the publishing company and that became blame my brain and so as I say it was a set of um, it was chance, but it was also driven very, very strongly by my passionate desire to understand as much as possible about how our brains work. Yeah, I love that. And and what you did so beautifully is somehow get all this neuroscience and packages up, package it up in a in a way that was accessible to teenagers and for anybody else who hasn't got neuroscience background. And 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 some of the things um I really found helpful in that book or, or really interesting was like um you know how come our child can uh tell us they hate us and wish we're dead and then five minutes later ask us for 20 quid for a pair of jeans. You know, because it's like that's something that people can really relate to, isn't it? And then the other the other thing that just brings to my mind was like, especially with two two teenage lads in our house then, was like, how come they're so open to risk? Yeah. You know, could you could you talk to any of that? Yeah, so I, I think um, you know, one of the things in in that context and in so many contexts with our interaction with teenagers, one of the things that parents and teachers, but parents particularly, so often say is oh, they've just done such and such. What were they thinking? But it's the, it's the question misses the point because mm. they weren't thinking, they mm. were reacting to an emotional need. So I think, and I, I do lots of talks, um, mostly nowadays for either parents or teachers rather than for students themselves, because I think it can be more helpful for me to talk to the parents and teachers. But in those talks, because there are so many things I could talk about, I have to be very selective. And I've come to the conclusion that the 
one most important thing to understand about the teenage brain as compared to a younger brain or, or an older brain is that the prefrontal cortex, which is our thinking, our rational, our control, it's often called the control center, is the last part of the brain to fully develop. And it doesn't do so until well into the 20s. At the same time, another set of areas, sometimes called the limbic system, which um, is where all of the things happen that you might call the opposite of control. So things to do with emotion and temptation and desire and stress, anxiety and things like that. All of the things that sort of happen to you and well up inside you. Um, that's where all that happens. And that's very, all of those areas are very well developed in teenagers and indeed in younger children. But in teenagers, you've got this not fully developed, even though everyone's a bit different and they'll get to each stage um, at different times compared, depending on, on who they are and lots of different factors. Um, but teenagers have not got a fully developed control center, prefrontal cortex, but they've got a very well developed and very activated set of um, emotional systems and desires and temptations and things. And in fact, as it happens, and as I point out to adults, all humans of all ages have a tendency for their limbic system, the temptation, reward, et cetera, et cetera, to be overpowering compared to the prefrontal cortex. But we as adults have a fully developed prefrontal cortex. So if anybody should be able to control those thoughts and, and, and emotions and risk-taking behaviors and decision-making, it should be us. We should find it easier than teenagers do. We we do find it easier, but we don't find it easy. We still often make mistakes. We lose control. We do the wrong thing. We say the wrong thing. We make um, wrong decisions. But for teenagers, that is more likely to be the case because, firstly, their prefrontal cortex, their control center is not fully developed. And secondly, because the emotions and the reasons to react as your peers do rather than as your parents would like you to do, your ability to think ahead, all of those things, are not um, are, are dominated by the, the limbic system. And so you have more chance as a teenager of making that wrong decision. And also for risk taking specifically, peer pressure is massive. The, mm. the desire, it's wired in biologically for us as humans and for teenagers particularly to do the thing which gets, which connects us to the group, which gets us status, which makes us friendships, which gets us um, respect from other people within the group or within the group of people we would like to be um, part of. And the fact that the teenager knows if they stopped and thought they know that the adults in their lives would say, no, 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 don't do that. That's that's likely to cause negative things down the line. Um, do this sensible thing instead. They know that, but their desire their, their um, temptation and drive, their instinct to do the thing that their peers or their potential group would, would respect them for doing is greater than their control center's ability to make the sensible decision. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And so, you know, I, I, I'm certain that, that we're not going down a conversation which is um, so we can let our children off with their poor behavior. We're not saying that at all. But what I think we are saying is by having an understanding of what is going on on a biological, neurological level, we can take a step back, not take it so personally, and view it more objectively. Yes, definitely. So 
the title Blame My Brain sounds like an excuse, but it's not. It's an explanation. Um, so it's saying this is how this is how things are. This is how things typically are. And this is why they are typically like that. This is why it's harder for um, adolescents than it is for adults to do um, make certain certain rational, cool decisions. Um, but it doesn't stop there because for a start once you know something about why it's happening as you say it becomes less personal not just for you as the parent so the parent isn't then thinking it's my fault um, but also for the young person themselves so they're not mm -hmm. thinking that it's their fault either they're they're understanding something about human biology what drives us I mean, for a start, or as another example, if you um, knew that you were eating lots of sugary things because your brain is wired to eat sugary things because that's in our evolution, that wouldn't give you permission or make it feel right to eat lots and lots of sugary things, but it would help you understand that this is a biological drive which could be quite hard to overcome and that's going to require some practice. And one of the th other things that I teach um, is, it's not specifically mentioned in Blame My Brain, but I teach it when I'm talking about it, is to do with growth mindset and how we become better at things by practicing. And those things could be um, you know, learning our times tables or the facts that what's the capital of what, what city is the capital of what country, or it could be physical skills, but it also can be um, your mental skills and character strength. So things like self-discipline and grit and determination, those things we learn by practice. And so once we know that certain things that we do, whether it's taking risks or um, snapping and flying off the handle and being rude to our parents or our friends or our teachers or, or anybody, um, rather than being more controlled and, uh, and sensible and looking ahead at what might be the positive outcome of a more positive behavior. Um, you know, we, we, we find ourselves drawn into, into doing that. And once we understand why, then, then we can, as you say, first take a step back and realize that it's not our fault for being a bad person, but that it's how our how brains are wired, but that there are ways as humans growing to be stronger, we can become better at making the right decision and not flying off the handle or whatever the, the thing is that we keep making a mistake with. Yeah, yeah. And I know you've already said, but I know you do a lot of work with schools, you know, with organisations, with parents, universities, I think you said. Um, do, where do you feel is the most impact with regard to people having this understanding to support young people? Yes. Yeah, so I used to do a lot of um, talks to students. So schools frequently still do ask me to do this, but um, more often now I say no, ask me to come in and talk for an hour to a group of students about some aspect of, of this or some, or, you know, something that, for example, I also write about sleep and about screen time and resilience. So any of those topics. But what I, what I felt very strongly and increasingly is that um, that parachuting in and talking for an hour to, to usually a whole year group of students, although some students in the audience would, would 
many of them were really, I could tell from their faces, really listening hard. And I would get lovely messages and things afterwards. For a significant proportion of them, it wasn't the right thing at the right moment. So they were too wrapped up in whatever their problems were that they were wrapped up in, or they weren't interested in the particular topic that I was speaking about on that day because it wasn't of relevance to them um, at that time in their lives. And um, I felt that it was poor value for schools. So I decided that a much better um, use of my time and energy and knowledge and the school's funds, because it's not cheap, was would be if I would come in and talk to either or both the parents. So I do a, an evening talk to, to the whole cohort of parents. Um, and or to do a staff training session. So I'll I'll go in and do do staff training, you know, a half day or um, or a couple of hours or a whole day or whatever on particular aspects. And the reason I think that those things are so much more valuable in every sense of the word, um, the reason is that all of the adults in the room can then take they'll take everything that I say. They want to hear it. They'll want to hear you know, like each person in the audience probably wants to hear 90 or 95 percent of what I say it's meaningful to them and they will take it and they will use it many times with many different students so if it's parents they'll use it with with all of the teenagers in their household and they'll use it as they need it going forward over the the following years and with teachers they'll use it over and over again year year after year and apply it differently to the different students that they come across so it felt like like a, like a hugely more more useful as i say use of my time and energy and and the school's funds um and so i've decided that that's that is now exclusively what i'll do so i now almost never there's there can be very exceptional reasons um when i think it's going to be valuable for a particular reason but um i almost never now go and talk directly to the students which which is a shame i, I do some online q a's and that can be very useful because um the students who come to those are they're there usually because they, they want to be they've chosen to be and they've come with prepared questions and things and that works very well but me parachuting in for an hour and they're disappearing again um, and you know, whatever percentage of them have not heard, they've listened, but they haven't heard and they haven't taken it meaningfully. Um, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. I do have, I also have on my website, um, I've created from some webinars that I did, I've created some videos that, um, that parents or schools can buy for a very small amount of money. So if if parents or teachers would rather hear my voice talking about something than reading a book, which is a completely valid decision, um, yeah. then there are lots of opportunities to do that on my website. Mm, fantastic. Yeah. Well, so what? So we'll we'll capture at the end, you know, your website and any anywhere else people can get hold of you, and we'll make sure they're in the show notes. So I wanted to just um, consider some. And uh, not just blame the brain, maybe, but, you know, have you had any feedback where this has had a really great impact, you know, where you've really known that what you're trying to do is has made a difference? And, and, and also, I just wondered within that, I'm sneaking something in here, you know, when when you talk, you, you include neurodiversity. And I just wondered whether, um, you know, you've had feedback from people from that angle, too. Yeah, so um, to the first question, I, I routinely, and it happened again yesterday, and I'll, I'll tell you why in, in a second, um, routinely get people 
coming up to me or contacting me and saying um, something, 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 your book made such an impact or something, 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 your book. Now, I've written a hundred and something books, Hmm. literally, but I always know which book they mean. So they mean blame my brain, always. They um, they might have read another book, but they have never meant another book. Um, And there's an interesting story around that. When the book first came out, as I say, in 2005, um, a friend of mine who was a, a, a school, secondary school headmaster, head teacher, said to me that he'd gone to a huge education conference of of other um, school heads and they'd all been asked to bring a book that they recommended that every all the other um, teachers head teachers read and he said that he and four other people had brought a copy of blame my brain which had just come out so that that was a lovely story but that was uh, as i say 17 years ago and yesterday, sadly, um, I was at that head teacher's funeral, and um, at that, in afterwards, when lo- there were lots and lots of people there, um, and we were all talking, and three people came up to me at that and said exactly that that same thing, and so I was able to tell that story of how he had been the first person who had given me a sense that 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 book was going to be important and I know that he shared it with parents at his school and um, I know many many people have so yeah that was that was um my story about that oh I love that and you know so like I said to you earlier you know I have conversations with parents all the time and I say you know you really it would be really worth you considering buying blame my brain and 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 I say you know and it's suitable for for teens as as well as for you and they say okay I'll get it and I'll give it to the teen and I sort of say why don't you have a look through it first you know it's almost because it's like maybe you'll find it interesting yes and also um as all or most of the parents listening to this will have experienced it can be quite hard to get a teenager to read a book anyway and um, one of the things I say about that is if the parent reads it first and then says to the teenager no you mustn't read this this you'll you'll get you'll get far too much insight into your own into your own mind I'm not having you reading this then that is probably (laughs) probably the best way to get them um, to read it because they they do want often want to do what it is that we say they mustn't do and you know if you can create a situation where you are getting them to take a risk the risk of reading a book or the risk of doing something beneficial rather than those other risks that you were I assumed you were referring to negative risks when you mentioned risk-taking before, but risk-taking is risk-taking and the brain sees the challenge of doing the thing that they, that, that, you know, you've been, it's been set up as being dangerous or risky or, or wrong or something. The brain doesn't distinguish between the right, the, the positive outcome ones and the negative ones. So that would be a, that would be a good tactic for, for reading that. But yes, I, I write in a way that even though the books are, directed at teenagers they're only directed at teenagers in the sense that what well, two senses I guess that's where they you'll find them in a bookshop because that's how bookshops work marketing means that they can't for some reason which I don't understand really they can't just be books they have to be books that are for young people or for for um adults but um yes that, that's that that's that that's what I think that they you should they should do with with that book so read it first yourself as a parent and then um get get your young people to read it by telling them not to 
Yeah, the old reverse psychology. I like it. I like it. So um, one of the things I just wanted to ask you about, which um, in Blame My Brains, we really, really are focusing on this book. Um, You use um, a test. You use the reading the mind in the eyes test. And I really found this fascinating. And I did a test on lots of people. And I just wondered whether you could describe it and just talk to this test. Yes. So um, you, it, because the book is black and white inside, um, it's actually reading it in the book, I have to confess, is not the best way, not the easiest way to do the test. But you can find the test online. Um, I, you might, I, I can't remember the URL off heart off by heart but if you want to put it in the um, show notes then I'll get it for you later it's from it's actually taken from the autism research center with permission from the author professor Simon Baron Cohen Um, and it's it's the idea is that um, different people have different levels of ability to detect or judge what the emotion somebody is feeling just by looking at their eyes so not even you don't get to see the whole face you just get a sort of rectangular letterbox shape um, which includes their eyes so you don't see their cheeks or their mouth or or anything else or even their their forehead Um, but it is amazing how much you can get or how much many people can get from reading, from just looking at that, those expressions um, of eyes. But as I say, it's on the Autism Research Centre site because it's one of the tests that are done to determine levels of autism. Mm-hmm. Um, because people, many people who are um, autistic or on that spectrum find it more difficult than some other people to determine what emotion somebody is feeling in the eyes. But it was also found that um, teenagers or young teenagers, specifically 11 and 12-year-olds, so as I say, adolescents rather than exactly teenagers, um, are less good than slightly younger and also less good than um, older teenagers at doing this this test. Um, There's no specific explanation or no proof, no proven explanation of why that might be, but there is something about the brain of a typical 11 or 12 year old which makes them on average less good than um, let's say 14 year olds at doing that test. You tend to get better at it it's it's uh, it's an empathy test in a mm. way and you know there, there are there are possible reasons why it might be the case that 11 and 12 year olds are less good on average than than other age groups at it it may be they've just got so much change because that's the time of the most amount of physical change going on in the brain um, it may be that they've just got so much change going on that they can't think about they can't focus they can't get their head around being able to identify somebody's expression from just their eyes because mm. I, I i find that in itself fascinating and one of the things that i suggested to you uh, you know just when when we were sharing information about this podcast was you know how uh, although the possibly the age differences don't correlate here but like the use of emojis you know how how us old folk, I, I often hear that we use the wrong emoji, you know, and a young person reads it completely differently. 
Yes, I think I was thinking about that when you mentioned it. And you know what? I don't think I don't think that's what's going on. Um, I think that for a start, emojis are not actual human faces. You mm. know, our, our human faces. I, I I mentioned that I've got um, very young grandchildren, so I've got a, a eight month old and a two and a half to three year old at the moment, um, and even a small baby, their facial expressions are complex, mm. but human. They're not a diagram. They're not an emoji. And I, and I think, and when, when new emojis come along, as they recently did, which is why I think this came into the news that different age groups interpret some emojis um, differently, which is quite, mm. can be quite amusing. Um, mm. I, when the new ones come along, you actually not whatever age you are, you actually have to be told what they are in some cases. So recently, when some new ones came along, I was very confused by some of them. So I asked. I've got I've got various younger relatives. I've I've kind of I span my family spans the whole um, age range, including millennials, um, who should be according to your theory a lot better than me or or. Or have a different <laughs> sense of what the emojis are, um, but no, they also had to have them explained. You know, there's one where half the head is melting into a pool. I still don't know what that what, what that one means. So the emojis are are they're false. They're representations of something that a human being has decided that's what it means. They're not really human facial expressions. They is just that we've we've learned what they mean. And then, as I say, when new ones come along, we sometimes have to have them interpreted for us. Some of them are more expressive. And it's nice when you get the ones that have got different degrees of a smile. So there's a there's a kind of slight smile and then there's a genuine full on smile. So there are aspects of them that do reflect how human faces work. But basically, we, we only know what they mean, or many of them, we only know what they mean, whatever age they are, because it's been agreed that that's what they mean, including mm. some that are nothing to do with faces at all, which, you know, when you kind of probably know the sort of ones I'm yes. thinking about, but that <laughs> represent something that if you weren't told that, you would never know that's what the thing represented. Well, that gives me hope for my prefrontal cortex. Then, so there is, there is. You just, you just have to learn. I just have to learn yeah. that practice. <laughs> so, Nicola, if anybody, any parent, any teacher, any teenager is listening to you, and they're resonating with what you're saying, what would be your message to them? I think the the main message that I I say when I'm doing a talk, particularly um, to any age group, underlying what ev underlying everything that I say and that I write is the message and the feeling that our brains are in our hands, and I'm I'm quick to. Um, qualify that by saying we shouldn't expect that our brains are, will ever be completely in our hands and therefore we shouldn't blame ourselves when there's something that our brain finds it difficult to do or can't do. There are things that have happened to our brains that are not nothing to do with us, not, not in our control rather, that we're, we're, we're not our fault and uh, you know, we, we, we can't claim any um, responsibility or blame for and that will also be the case in the future. But there are for all of us including for teenagers, there are more things that we can do 
to make our brains be better than we might think. And particularly for teenagers who often think that no aspects of their life are in their control. They have their rules are made for them. Their routines are de de uh, determined for them by adults. There's nothing they can do, they often think, to control their behaviors and how their life goes. And so my message is no, there are things that you can control. There are aspects of your brain that can be in your hands. And the key is to working out what you can control and what you can't and spending as much time and headspace as possible on what you can control and as little as possible on what you can't control. Mm. What a fantastic message. Um, thank you so much. So um, people can get hold of you via your website. Um, would, you, would you share that with us now? Yes. So it's very simple. It's www.nicolamorgan.com. And right. you will find a contact page and you'll find masses of information you'll find far too much information you need to get coffee um and probably chocolate to keep you going while you look and, at can, and can anybody follow you on social media what what's your preferred platform yes um so i'm i do quite a lot on twitter so i would say twitter is twitter and my website so you can follow my blog on my website um you won't be bombarded with information, I promise. And you can follow me on Twitter. I am also on Twitter. I'm Nicola Morgan. So it's very easy to find me. Um, or I am on Instagram as Nicola Morgan's brain, but that's not a good way to contact me because I'm, I'm not usually there. And I'm usually, if I do anything there, I'm showing you pictures of the things I've grown in my garden because I'm a keen <laughs> vegetable gardener. So you, you, can, you can obviously look at that if you want to, but you won't learn very much about brains from my Instagram account, even though it's called Nicola Morgan's Brain. But you're very <laughs> welcome, very welcome to follow me there. But um, Twitter, Twitter and my website are definitely the, the places to find out what I do and contact me and, and engage. That's with me. fantastic. Thank you. And so what and what we'll also do is find the link to the um, to the um, reading the mind in the eyes, the autism test. We'll, yes. we'll put that link in the show notes too. Nicola, it's been really brilliant to spend time with you. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are and um, and that's, that's just working together to get this message out there. Yeah, no, that's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And, um, and good luck and well done with all the work that you do as well. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Precarious Parenting by Realisation Works. Subscribe to realisationworks.com to access more resources, including monthly blogs written to be shared with younger people.